Whether you've got an ergonomic keyboard and mouse or that new gaming chair, you take measures to ensure that your gaming experience is comfortable. So why shouldn't your lower half be just as comfortable as your top? Buddha boxers use a super breathable bamboo fabric that increases air circulation and absorbs more moisture than cotton, which means you can focus on one thing, gaining XP and wetting your shorts. Discover underwear zen and stay fresh throughout your gaming bender. Visit www.buddaboxers.com. That's B-U-D-D-H-A boxers.com. Hello and welcome yeah. to Achievement Oriented, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I am a writer for TheRinger.com. And joining me for the 50th time 50, on this podcast, 50. it's my colleague, Jason Concepcio. We made it to 50. We made it to 50. Uh, I can't we weren't wait. sure we'd make it to five. Yeah, they're, they're flying you out, having a big dinner <laughs> at the Soho house. It's going to be great, yeah. man. They're getting us all those VR gear we, oh, we finally man. We, we wanted. This is it. <laughs> oh, we are just rolling in the rewards for yes. making it to 50. I know you made it to 50 binge modes in like three weeks, oh but it's God. taken us a little bit longer. But it's it's been a fun run. I'm glad uh, we made it this far. The people have joined us. Same here, Ben. Yeah. So we have a lot to get to today. We don't have a lot of time to talk to each other because we have other people to talk to. Later in this episode, we're going to talk about a new game called Localhost with the developers of that game, Sophia Park and Penelope Evans. We're going to talk to them about Twine, which I know you have experimented with. Not to the level. (laughs) Maybe a little less success than than they've had. It's pretty impressive what they were able to do. But it's a a new $5 game. It involves AI and difficult choices. It's like papers please in that it will make you feel bad about yourself and the world but also be rewarding in some ways too we liked it a lot but before we get to them we are going to talk to a fairly frequent guest of ours jason schreier of kotaku we're going to talk to him about destiny 2 which we have dabbled in but have not completed we'll probably talk about that more on a future episode but we're also going to talk to him about his new book so let's welcome him on now Okay, so as promised a few months ago, when we had him on to discuss the troubled development of Mass Effect Andromeda, we are rejoined now by Kotaku News Editor Jason Schreier to talk about his book about the mostly troubled, but sometimes slightly less troubled, creative processes behind 10 other big games. That book is called Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, the triumphant turbulent stories behind how video games are made. It's out this week. It is burning up the book charts. Jason, welcome back, and congratulations on launching without any book-breaking bugs. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, thanks for having me. I should have really called the book uh, The Troubled and Slightly Less Troubled <laughs> Stories <laughs> yeah. Behind Making Video Games. Um, yeah, there aren't yes, any really short chapters that are just like, everything went well. Yeah, it was great. It just <laughs> well, was really smooth. <laughs> kind of the last, uh, our, our other interview, kind of, but not really. Yeah, we uh, were talking about Localhost also in uh, this episode, which was also a, a crunch, but a much shorter one, as we will hear later on. But 
I'll just read out the games that are featured in this book to whet people's appetites. Of course, you mentioned many other games in the process of talking about these 10, but it's Pillars of Eternity, Uncharted 4, Stardew Valley, Diablo 3, Halo Wars, Dragon Age Inquisition, Shovel Knight, Destiny, The Witcher 3, and Star Wars 1313. How did you curate this list of 10? I assume you wanted a cross-section of like big studio games and indie games and games that turned out to be big successes and games that didn't turn out to be games. But what were some of the ones that maybe just missed the cut or or which of these chapters turned into more fleshed out stories than you were expecting initially? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when I started off, I actually was going to do 12, um, which now in retrospect seems like it would have been insane. Um, and I guess it's fitting that I was writing a book about game development and I overscoped and got ambitious and <laughs> then had to cut back on some features. Um, so originally I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to do like a variety of games, so a mix of AAA, indie. Um, I wanted to get a cancel game in there, and I did with 1313. I had some ideas in mind, and I actually, when I was putting together the book proposal, which is what my agent and I shopped to publishers, we had pretty much the final list as it looks now with like a couple of tweaks here and there between the games. Um, but I knew like, I knew I wanted to do an Obsidian games because I like those guys, and I, I knew a bunch of them, so I thought they would be willing to have me come by and chat with them for a few days. Um, I knew I really wanted to do Uncharted 4. I knew I really wanted do a Bioware game. Um, I pretty much got, with a couple of exceptions, I pretty much got all of the games that I wanted to do, whether it was through getting access officially through the publisher, as I did with Uncharted and Pillars of Eternity and Dragon Age and a few of the others, or through talking to people kind of on my own, unofficially, both on and off the record, which was like Destiny and Star Wars 1313. Um, for Destiny, for example, Bungie just didn't want to comment at all. They didn't want to participate in the book as well at all, which is too bad because I would have liked to talk to some of the folks who are still there even though a lot of them have left at this point. Um, but as far as putting it together, yeah, I wanted a variety, and I'm really happy with like the variety that I came up with. Um, and I wanted to make sure that they were all different kinds of stories. So, um, for example, the Diablo 3 story isn't a story of how that game was made. It's a story of what happened after that game came out mm. and all the tweaks they made and everything they had to do to recover from the disastrous Error, se- error 73 um, yeah. or Wait, is that it? 73? 37. Yeah. 37. God, yeah. man, you can tell that I'm fried <laughs> in this book launch week. Um, Air 37, and yeah, like recovering after that. Um, and I knew the Witcher 3 story would be very different, for example, and the Kickstarter stories of Pillars and Shovel Knight. So yeah, that was my main goal was like variety. I wanted a lot of different types of stories and games in there, um, which I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with, with that, with how it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, well, was there any... Anything particularly meaty that that couldn't get in the book that you could can you drop on us now because you couldn't confirm or, or get third party confirmations anything like that? Oh man, any unsubstantiated? Yeah, rumors, we want we just, that's that's what the podcast is for is the unsubstantiated, <laughs> the raw shit. Oh man, give it to um, us. So there's one 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 tiny little story yes. that I heard. Um, that didn't make it in the book. I only I, I heard this from one person. I think I might have Good. gotten confirmation like from it. a second person. That's enough. <laughs> Games after dark. Let's go. Yeah, I hope I hope nobody listens to this. Hey, uh, if you are a journalist listening to this, just 
skip this part. Um, let's move on to the next part. No, uh, so I heard a funny story I heard is that for Destiny, and I think they've actually said stuff like this, some some confirmation about this, is that they hired David Cross and um, what's his name? What's uh, the Brian Posehn? Mr. Shows David Cross? Mr. Shows David Cross and Brian Posehn. They hired them to punch up their scripts and come in and just like write comedy. Uh, This is for the original Destiny, not Destiny 2. Which we all all know is a laugh riot. Right. Hilarious, (laughs) just full of charm and humor. So the story that the way it was told to me was that they were hired and then they came in and either they wrote a bunch of stuff and none of it was used or they just didn't have anything to do because the studio was just going through story like upheaval, um, as you can read about it in the book, yes. and going through this turmoil of throwing away the, well, all the story they had written and starting from scratch with the, just uh, all of the material that they had. And so basically none of their work made it into their game. And I think actually I looked it up once and David Cross or Brian Prosain, one of them said something to that effect publicly that like, hey, we wrote all this stuff and none of it was actually in there um but yeah the story i heard was that they were like um okay and and just didn't do anything with it um which which is speaks to a the amount of money that activision was spending on this game Mm. and b the development turmoil that it was going through yeah that is a a motif that pops up throughout this book just (laughs) wasted work or work that doesn't end up in the game it's like Uh for everything that you see on the screen it seems like there's like 10 times more work that was done on specs and demos and you know prototypes and directions that the game didn't end up going that just totally wiped out someone's months of hard labor yeah, it's crazy. It's just cut features and um, reduced scopes and uh, ideas that seem fun on paper but don't actually work when you pick mm. up a controller and start playing them. These are the things that we don't really think about when we're playing games. But when you're making games and you're trying to stick to a schedule and you spend two months working on this really cool prototype for like uh, in Uncharted 4, for example, in the book there's a chapter uh, on Uncharted 4 and it mentions this ballet dancing prototype that they were working on where Nathan Drake, <laughs> the main character, and his uh, wife Elena would be trying to invade this gala and steal a treasure and so they would have to ballroom dance across the floor to get there without being seen and spotted and so you would have to do this like kind of rhythm game uh, to get them across the floor and if you fail then you'd have to start over and so the developers at Naughty Dog they say they prototype this and they really like the idea of it but just in practice it just didn't fit for whatever reason it just wasn't working and so they had to cut it um, but yeah game development is like littered with the corpses of features that Wonderful. have not worked um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny to think about, right? It's like all the ideas that people have. And, and that's one of the reasons that you hear so much about this industry crunch, not just because people are trying to marathon every episode of Game of Thrones and talk about it on podcasts, <laughs> but because <laughs> people are working on uh, Too games. It was, it was actually <laughs> extremely gratifying. Let me just say that. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> well, some, I mean, that's what video game developers say because yeah. they have Stockholm right. Syndrome and they're like, right. oh, maybe it's, it's really satisfying. Um, there is kind of this unhealthy attitude where people, and it's all of us in American culture where we all just work ourselves to death and feel like it's gratifying, but really it's it's killing us slowly. But no, as as long as it's not like a, a nine months out of the year thing, as long as it's like, it's like, okay, a few weeks of the year, maybe a month of the year, maybe a little while, very temporarily, and then going back to normal for the rest of the time. Like, I think that working really hard for couple weeks 
um, a weekend, long nights, whatever, can be exhilarating and really helpful as long as it isn't, doesn't become this pervasive thing where it's all year round. This is all that's happening. And mm-hmm. I think in game development, the latter is, is what happens a lot more common. And I think one of the reasons for that is that you work on these features like ballroom dancing and you have no idea that they're not going to turn out to be fun, but the schedule only gives you X amount of time. So if you spend yeah. some of that time prototyping yeah. something and then it doesn't actually make it to the game, then you're like, oh, shit, we have this entire game to make, but now our schedule is suddenly m- missing two months because we used that, those two months prototyping something that doesn't actually work. So it's, it's really tough. Yeah. It seems like there's a, a time money equation there that just can't work out any other way. Because as you mentioned, we, we've all crunched. Everyone listening to this has crunched at some point on something, but it seems to be baked into the video game development industry in a way that it isn't in most industries. And that just seems to be because you have to make games at a certain pace to fund the development, but it's impossible to make games at that pace and make them good without doing this, without working round the clock at some point during the development. And I think it's Neil Druckmann of Naughty Dog at some point in your book is quoted as saying, the only way to avoid this is just to lower your sights, basically, to try and not to make a great game, because if you're trying to make a great game, you're just inevitably going to end up this way. And I just from reading it, I know we're going to talk in a couple of weeks to Walt Williams, who has a, a book coming out about this, too. But it just seems like there's no way around it. I, did you come up with any kind of rules for humane game making as you were working on this book that you would say this is the the best way to try to avoid this knowing that it will probably still pop up at some point um it's it's tough because when you're working on a big game in a studio like naughty dog and you know that your deadlines are immutable it's tough to not want to be like, all right, if if I want, if I'm a designer and I have this feature that I really love, but I know that this feature will not make it into the game unless I put in these extra hours and stay until midnight for the next four weeks, then what am I going to do? I mean, the options are, it's kind of a lose-lose scenario, right? It's like you want your art, you take pride in your work and you want this game to be a game of the year candidate and, and be the best game possible. But to do that, like, do you really have to sacrifice your life? I don't know. I mean, if I had a solution, then <laughs> maybe I would be in charge of all things video games. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not. A lot of people say that game developers should organize, which I think maybe in an ideal uh, ideal world that would be the solution. But it has a lot of impracticalities, including the fact that game publishers are already outsourcing a lot to like India and China yeah. and Egypt. And they would do that even more if game developers were organized and be like, you know what, you're going to unionize. Well, fuck you. I'm going to go take my business elsewhere, Um, which is just a very American corporation thing to do. Um, So, yeah, I don't I don't know. I think um, just having realistic schedules is important because some developers plan out their schedules accounting for crunch in the first place. So it's like, yeah, we can make this game in two years. But you know what? We know we're going to crunch for the last six months like hell, but we'll do it anyway. Um, that sort of thing is is pretty unrealistic. Um, I don't know. I think a big part of it is kind of individual choices. So people making the decision to be like, you know what, this is not worth it. I mean, this game is not worth me taking years off of my life and damaging my personal relationships and like never seeing my kids 
because I want to stay at the office and, and work on this feature. I mean, making games is not worth sacrificing yourself and your family and your personal relationships. Um, as far as the systemic problems, I mean, I have no idea how do you solve a problem like that. The only way is for it to come from the top down where at the very top of these companies, the CEOs are saying, you know what, my company is not going to do this. We are going to have uh, uh, healthy schedules and we are going to put in the money and resources and give our employees the the time they need to make games without having to burn out and go crazy and crunch for six months at a time. Jason, why are you such a pussy? Um, <laughs> I, it's, it strikes me that, like, uh, thinking about this, um, pivoting back to Destiny, which is the sequel just came out this week, um, uh-huh. the exotic weapon, the Touch of Malice, which you remember, I'm sure, from the Taken King, <laughs> of course. is a lot, it's a lot like the crunch in that yes. once you expend the clip... <laughs> Uh, each shot takes a bit of your life, uh, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, absolutely as as I'm sure you recall, was very important to the Taken King raid um, for certain portions of it. Um, talking about uh, the development for Destiny, could you, uh, since that game just came out, could you talk about some of the? I mean, really, the uh, almost like a perfect storm of uh, of structural and personal and just crazy problems, creative problems that like struck the development of that game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was a ridiculous thing to hear about. Um, yeah, Destiny is a fascinating game because at the beginning of development on that game, they a lot of the people at Bungie didn't know what it was because here they were creating this new IP. Right. Um, uh, uh, Jason Jones, the creative lead of Bungie and the co-founder, would describe it as like the first, like this shared world shooter, but nobody really knew what that meant right. until after it came out, really, and really up until the very end of development on the game, people didn't know what it meant. Um, it also had, I mean, there are a lot of factors at play at Bungie. One was that there are a ton, or were a ton of like alpha male personalities at that studio mm-hmm. who all just thought their ideas were best and were all just kind of having lots of creative conflicts, um, which is one of the reasons we saw so many people leave or get fired over the course of development of the first game. Um, the other big factor was um, this pressure of having just created Halo and now you have to follow up on that. I mean, you just made like one of the biggest video game franchises yeah. of all time and um, their CFO at the time was now the CEO, Paul Parsons was in, or P. Parsons, sorry, was in the media saying, we want Destiny to be up there alongside Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. So there's all this pressure on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was the best. Very, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's pretty great, right? I, and, um, Ambition yeah, and it's is like, good. Yeah, ambition. <laughs> they were def- certainly had no lack of ambition in that game, um, and so so you could see in the results of it that like they were really good with the first game at creating at building what they were really good at, which is right. making this shooter and making it feel really good to shoot aliens and like art direction and music and all these other things. But you could tell that it didn't coalesce into a video game that felt like a complete video game because the director was kind of this weird thing where missions all just felt like disjointed things and it didn't feel like there was enough content in there and um, the story obviously was just a disaster and felt like it was just like written by a bunch of middle school students who put together like uh, grabbed from a grab bag of proper nouns like darkness, stranger, you know what, this is it traveler, we're going to throw them all together (laughs) Um, the light uh, 
Yeah, like and uh, and yeah, all of that combined, and you could tell like as soon as the game came out, immediately they started issuing updates and changing things and making things better and fixing the things that went wrong. And with Destiny Two, which just came out, I just finished a story last night, and it's incredible. It's like this great fifteen-hour story campaign that feels like a complete story has this epic ending. Is just like like in comparison to the Black Garden, which was the end of Destiny One's yeah. vanilla mm. campaign. It's just like, oh my god, it's there's no comparison. It's just yeah. so much better. And I think the biggest reason for that is that Destiny uh, Two for Destiny Two. I mean, I heard that game went through plenty of development problems itself and actually changed creative leads in the middle of development um, when Luke Smith, who was the director of The Taken King, took over. Um, but even with all that, it was it, they, that game managed to coalesce after a year-long delay because, um, in large part because they knew what the game was and they knew what mm. Destiny was. And when everyone knows, like, okay, this is Destiny, this is what we can do, this is what it can look like, this is what it feels like to play, this is how all the MMO aspects work, then it's a lot easier to make smart decisions about how it will feel to play. And it's a lot easier to improve upon things that didn't work the first time around. Um, yeah. Because so often in these games, and this is a common theme in, in the book, um, which came out this week, by the way, so you can get it anywhere, <laughs> bookstores, whatever. Um, it's called Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. So you can... Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I would say pre-order now, but you can't pre-order it anymore, sadly. You have to order it. Um, so... so uh, uh, no pre-order first bonuses. Game and you can tell... Yeah, no pre-order bonuses anymore. Sorry, no free <laughs> DLC. Um, the No exotic weapons for pre-ordering it anymore. But yeah, so with the first game, it all really coalesced at the very last minute, at, which is a common theme with all the games in this book, is that you don't really know what a game is until all of the pieces that all the different departments are working on have come together. Yeah. Um, because when you're during development, you might play a game, and then like over here is a placeholder cutscene where it just, instead of showing the cutscene, it just cuts to black and says, cutscene goes here, it will say this. Or you look one way and um, instead of seeing the actual enemies, you're seeing like a bunch of gray boxes where it's literally just like amorphous shapes and uh, they're gray and there are no assets implemented. Or like you walk somewhere and it crashes or the frame rate sinks. There's so many pieces that we don't even think about that needs to come together for a game to feel like an actual video game. And when you don't know what that game feels like because it's not all put together, it's really, really tough to say, is this good or not? What is working here? What is not working here? Especially when it's an online game that millions of people are going to play. Millions of people are going to like figure out all the nooks and crannies and loot caves and heavy ammo bugs and stuff like that. Um, so point is, with Destiny 2, it's like they knew all that already. They could say, okay, instead of doing this kind of disjointed mission structure, we're going to have everyone go on to these maps that feel more like open world games, and you'll be able to go through them and find secrets, and there will be lots of stuff to do. And now we're going to have a proper story with cutscenes that show this this villain, and it's going to have one central villain, and you will know exactly who you are taking on the entire story, and it's going to lead up to that fight um, and be really cool. And so... Now they could actually deliver something that is like justifies the the budget and the 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 promises they made and the ambitions they had in the past, which is really cool to see. And I'm glad that they were able to do this uh, for the sequel because it's really impressive. It's really good. Yeah, it's amazing reading in the book just how often developers will audible on something that is just foundational at, yeah. at like a, an <laughs> yep. end stage of the development. It's like, how is that not a thing that you decided before this process even started? It's just so late in the game to do this and tear up everything and rewrite everything the way they did with the Destiny story, not to great effect, really, because it ended up being mostly 
meaningless and nonsensical to me, at least. And mm. I do want to ask you more about Destiny 2 in a minute, but a couple more things about the book. Another thing that stood out to me in the Destiny chapter, as well as the Halo Wars chapter, is the way that a developer can get typecast and kind of locked into a certain mm. genre and how mm-hmm. frustrating that can be for developers at time. Like in Destiny, Bungie wanted to get away from Halo and distance itself from that behemoth and then just inevitably ended up closer and closer to Halo just for really good reasons. A, it's because it's what the audience expects, it's what your publisher expects, but it's also because that's where your expertise is. And so Mm -hmm. if you're Bungie, they initially wanted to make Destiny a fantasy game, but all of Bungie's artists did sci-fi stuff, so they ended up Mm -hmm. making a sci-fi game. Or, you know, their development tools were built for first-person shooters, and so it was a lot easier to make another first-person shooter than to switch to third-person. Or you talk about this in the Halo Wars chapter with Ensemble, which is the Age of Empires studio, and they were sick of Age of Empires and the last thing they wanted to do was to make another RTS but they ended up making another RTS, a console one Mm -hmm. but still RTS so it just seems like it's really hard to break out of that and I guess it makes it even more impressive to me when there's a studio that actually manages to switch from one genre to the next from game to game Yeah, I mean Blizzard uh, is one that is just known for making a lot of different types of game. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, usually most of the time that a studio is associated with certain types of game and that really is all they're making. Um, Even Naughty Dog, which is making uh, The Last of Us and Uncharted games, they're both very similar even Mm -hmm. if they're drastically different genres. Um, Bioware is making a lot of different types of games, but they all have that kind of Bioware feel or Bioware sensibility. Um, Yeah, part of it is... is, um, something that these companies willingly embrace. Um, but as we see in the ensemble chapter, sometimes companies do not want to do that. And I think one of the interesting things about ensemble is that they would just be prototyping new games constantly and all those prototypes <laughs> would just fall apart for one reason or another yeah. or get discarded because Microsoft, their parent company, was like, hey, you, why aren't you guys making more Age of Empires? Like, that's why we bought you yeah. to make this game that is profitable. Um, I think there has always been this sense that uh, gamers will see a company and see what they are good at and just want more of the same. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, when I think of, like, I don't know, when I played Nino Kuni, all I wanted after I played that was another Nino Kuni. So I'm glad that that studio is making another Nino Kuni game. Um, when I play Destiny, I am sure glad that Bungie is making another Destiny game instead yeah. of, like, I don't know, trying to do another IP. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's both a good and a bad thing in, in various ways. I think that it can be beneficial for uh, studios to work on sequels. And I think sequels can actually. Um, almost always a sequel is going to be better by nature than the first game because the developer has learned how to make games and learned how to make that type of game and has the tools in place and the pipelines in place to be able to make things more quickly and more efficiently. And like I said before, if you know what your game is, it's a lot easier to develop and fine-tune and make sure it's really good, as we were seeing with Destiny 2. But yeah, I mean, when you're working on the same type of game for 10 years, you can certainly get burned out, especially when you're crunching as much as uh, game developers do. So... Yeah, I think that's something we we continue to see. And actually with Bungie, one of the reasons that so many of the veterans uh, left is because they were like, hey, we've made, and we saw Jamie Greesimer in the book talks about this, yeah. hey, we made a lot of 
Halo games before. I'm sick of making Halo games. And now Destiny is just like like heading in the same direction as right. other Halo games. I don't want to be involved with that anymore. So yeah, it's an interesting uh, conversation that, that a lot of studios have to deal with um, and, and not an easy dilemma. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Uncharted and Naughty Dog. Uh, one of the things I found fascinating in that chapter um, of your book, Blood and Blood, Sweat and Pixels, which comes Blood, out this week. Blood, Sweat and Pixels, <laughs> available week. now. <laughs> available now on Amazon and your, and your local bookstore, um, was how the architecture of the PS3 actually hung up development of Uncharted 3. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a very hard platform to write for. And this is something actually that um, has come up in your coverage on K- Kotaku of Destiny, like the, the hardware that um, that Bungie uses, kind of slowing down the process in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a thing that people don't really think about. They don't really um, – nobody thinks about the way that hardware affects um, the development of a game or the gameplay experience kind of writ large. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? And, and cause it, it feels like that's one of those like hidden factors that probably affected so many things about the PS3's uh, life cycle. Yeah, I think so. And I say this as not a technical person. And of course. I, so I don't know anything about like how I am an expert nuts and bolts. Yeah, I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so, yeah, so, so, when you're making on when you're working on a console, you're often working on technology that is several years old, which I think campers yeah. with developers can do. And we're, we saw that with Destiny One because they had to make that game for both the PS4 and Xbox One and the PS3 and Xbox 360. And I think the last gen version of that game kind of hindered what they could do because they couldn't be as ambitious and push the technology in as many directions. Um, and if you play Destiny Two now on PS4 or Xbox One, it's just remarkable how many more, uh, how many crazy graphical effects and really yeah. wild, ambitious things they're doing with the with the way this game looks and feels. The play it's pretty wild um but yeah i mean you i think making games for a lot of different hardware platforms can be really hard um it just takes a lot of extra time and resources that many developers don't have um and it's yeah when you're making especially when you're shipping a game for five platforms i think that was a big problem for the dragon age inquisition team was having to ship the game on last gen hardware and they had that mantra i talk about this in the dragon age chapter of the book they had this mentality going into it that like we don't want any of the versions of this game to feel um worse than the other ones Mm. so we don't want to cut features on the ps3 and 360 versions that we have on the ps4 and xbox one versions therefore we can't do some of these things that we want to do on the PS4, Xbox One versions, on the PS3, 360 versions. So that's always a bummer when technology prevents these game developers from doing what they want to do. The other thing is that every time we have a new console transition, game developers have to kind of relearn their craft in a lot of ways because developing is so much different. I mean, the PS3 had this infamous um, cell architecture, it's called, which, um, from what I've heard, made it really difficult. And people have been public about this, made it difficult to make games for that platform unless you were only making games for that platform. So if you're making games for... 360 and PS3, they would it would take a lot of different technical. Uh, uh, it would be a different process developing on, on PS3, and that caused problems for people. Um, I think we saw that with Skyrim back in the day mm. on where it had all these save issues on PS3, and it would have like memory leaks and delete your saves or corrupt your saves or whatever, and it was just a, pro- a big problem. Um, 
And yeah, and then moving to the PS4 through Xbox One, there were a lot of hiccups and stumbling blocks and just developing uh, games on new hardware can be really difficult for people. Um, And I'm sure we will see some of that again with the PS4 Pro and Xbox One X and then whatever comes after that to the point where it's just like, it just never ends. The number of factors and complications never ends. And the other thing is that Um, Something I talk about a lot in the book is tools and how important tools are to game development, which is something that we don't think about. But like um, development tools, a.k.a. the stuff that people in game studios are using to design levels or make art or whatever else, make character models. um, That stuff is super important because imagine that like we, one of us was trying to write an article in a CMS that was broken half the time or like took 30, 30 minutes to load every sentence or something like that. It's just unimaginable to think about. And that's kind of the equivalent of making games and tools that feel sluggish and incomplete. And oftentimes the developers, a studio might have one team working on tools at the same time as the other teams are working on content for the game so the tools might just be constantly changing every day you get into work and it's it functions totally different or or differently or it's full of bugs or it's got some issues that prevent you from working on any given day this was a big problem in destiny one's development by the way um because they were building their own engine their own technology at the same time as they were making the game Uh, and that's the type of thing that also changes from generation to generation so moving from the ps3 to the ps4 eras you got to change your technology because you're building on a totally different platform um so it's it's just this constant set of headaches that developers have to deal with that i think is unique to the game industry i mean i know that like pixar has to deal with similar sort of things but even there they're not getting games to run or they're not getting their movies to run in real time they're making right. these movies that you can't <laughs> jump into a Pixar movie and move the camera around right. which really changes the equation and makes it just so much harder to deal with mm-hmm. um, so yeah that's that's just a big complication that people don't think about yeah it's fascinating also to read about some of the political issues and the infighting that occurs in some of these studios sometimes it's my favorite mm-hmm. stuff yeah like one <laughs> team's project will Game of Thrones style. right will take precedence over another's and then people who are working on one game will have to go to the other game that maybe they're not as into and they just have to kind of suck it up and and sometimes it's that a studio will just grow really quickly because they'll have success with one game and then all of a sudden they're a completely different studio and it's hard to maintain the same spirit or camaraderie that they had when they were just a, a tiny operation so I love that stuff I also really love the stuff about how hard it is for developers to maintain perspective on their game Mm -hmm. when they're working on the same thing for years. And we might have experienced this to a lesser extent. I mean, when you're working on this book, you know, it takes years to do. And at some point in the process, you're probably thinking, is this even good anymore? I can't even tell. I've read this and reread this 10 times. I don't even know what it's like to someone who hasn't read it before. And that Mm -hmm. happens with games too. And I think you mentioned it in the Halo Wars chapter where it was supposed to be this accessible game and sort of simplified controls. But once they had spent years playing the game and building the game, it started to seem too simple to them because they were so used to it and they couldn't really experience it the way a first time player would. And so then you start creating problems for yourself that you don't even need to just because you're coming at it from the perspective of the person who built the game and no one else is going to receive it the same way. So it's just another Mm -hmm. level of difficulty and complication on top of everything else. 
Yeah, that's why companies and, and, and developers just put so much value on outside playtesting, which I think is really important if you're going to make a game and you want to get fresh eyes on it, fresh hands on the controllers. Um, to your point earlier about the team sizes, yeah, that's another huge factor that people don't think about is that a game's studio's culture changes so much when it's um, 500 people as opposed to 50 people. Um, and it's funny, so I was actually at Yacht Club Games, who are the folks who make Shovel Knight, um, which is one of the chapters in the book. Mm-hmm. And that studio, when I was there, I think was about 10 or maybe 12 people. Um, it was small enough that they could have a stand-up meeting every morning at 11 a.m. or whatever it was, yeah. uh, where they would all just stand in the same room and go around in circles and and say what they were working on. Um, fun story. So when I was there, I visited them for a couple of days, talking to everybody there, and I uh, went to the stand-up meetings, and so I was standing in a circle with them, and they would go around the room, and someone would be like, oh, I'm working on the the, design, the levels for this boss, or I'm working on the art for this character. And <laughs> then it would get to me, and I would be like, um, I'm working on a book about you guys. <laughs> uh, so I felt like I was part of the team. Um, but yeah, and they also have this culture where they all have to make every decision about the studio. So all 10 of them have to agree every time they hire someone new. Um, And that's something that would be impossible if they got any bigger. And so I'm very curious to see how they will do if they keep expanding, if they get to the point where they're like, hey, in order to make these ambitious games, we have to have more people. But will that damage our studio culture? Uh Uh-oh. So that's something to always think about and keep an eye on. And it's something that if you are kind of an average gamer or interested in gaming, um, it, just going up and looking how many people worked on each of the games, each of your favorite games, is an interesting exercise because sometimes you'd be surprised if you look through the credits and you just see these hundreds and hundreds of people and you're like, holy crap, it takes that many people to make a game? Yeah. And then other times it's like, oh, I understand why this game came together so well. It was only 10, 20 people like, really coalescing and they had this uh, uh, budget and schedule and scope that were just really restrained and well-defined, and so it worked really well. Um, with Shovel Knight, they went through some horrible, horrible crunch, um, but it seemed, but they also made their game within a year and a half, or less than a year and a half. So it was the type of game that was just a team that clicked and well-scoped, and um, they seemed to have their act together. They did, uh, uh, when I visited them, they were vowing not to crunch again, but I think some of them were skeptical that that would happen. Yeah. Um, I guess we shall see. But yeah, it seems to, I mean, just, just being a creative person, I mean, I know what it's like to work on a, uh, now that our company is bought by Univision and we are part of a, a thousand, 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 a company that has thousands of people. It's much different than back when we were Gawker Media and we were all in the same like fourth floor loft and could go look at Nick Denton and go over to him. Go it just look, changes the culture. Go look at him. <laughs> yeah, go, that's what we would do. We would just sometimes gather. No, gaze upon if him. Gaze in his eyes. No, if we needed something, we could just yeah. be like, hey, Nick, we need this thing. Um, as opposed to now where it's like you have to go through layers of a company and there are goods and there are pros and cons to both types of companies but uh, it definitely changes the culture when you go from Bungie to 50 people working on Halo 1 to 750 people working on Destiny 2. It changes things. Um, so from, from gigantic development teams to development teams of single people, one person. Uh, Stardew Valley is one of my favorite games of the last year um, just because it's a farming simulator, as I'm sure many people know, um, and kind of in that genre of um, pixelated 16-bit games that 
recall an era of gaming, but do so fully informed by everything that's happened in that in, in that time. Um, it's just a game that has like so much content. It's almost you, you're stunned by it. I mean, it is a farming simulator. There's a little bit of um, you know you can talk to all the people in the village. You can fish. You can sell stuff. You can go on a dungeon crawl that goes on essentially forever and, and find, like, treasures. Uh, it's an incredible game. It's created by one guy, Eric Barone. Um, and it's it's really spectacular, not just in what, uh, what it does, but in the way that it's a labor of love of a single person. I mean, can you talk mm-hmm. about, a little bit about that game? Yeah, I mean, the story is, is wild, and I don't want to spoil things, but basically yeah. this one guy shut himself in a room for five years and worked on this game, supported by his girlfriend, who I think is the most patient person on earth. Um, and, uh, yeah, and and it was just the type of thing where, if anything, I mean, yeah, that's the total opposite of, like, the Bungie approach or the Ubisoft approach, right. where it's just hundreds and hundreds of people working on a game. And I think that the... Uh, the merit to that, the, the biggest advantage of that is that you as a creative person have complete control over everything you do. You don't have to make any compromises or give up any of your vision because you can just do everything. Um, and the downside for Eric Barone at least was that, or the biggest, one of the big downsides was that he didn't have anyone to tell him what to do or when to do what. So he would just do things on a whim or sometimes he would finish like 90% of a feature and then just stop and move on to something he was more interested in. He would just get up in the morning and say, all right, today I'm going to work on whatever I feel like working. And that's what he would do. Um, or he would say, today I feel like going on Steam and playing uh, Civilization all day. <laughs> and then he would switch screens when his girlfriend got home. So she thought he was working, um, which is something we can all relate to. Um, and he, he, yeah, I mean, he had a, a, a wild story. He was a super talented dude. And there are just so many complications that come into play when you're doing this all by yourself. For one, when you start doing something and you're kind of teaching yourself how to do something along the way, like, for example, pixel art, mm. which is the act of drawing these 2D sprites that make up this game, um, he would draw sprites and then a year later he would revisit them and be like, hey, I just got so much better at drawing sprites. I should just redraw all of these, and that's what he'd go back and do. Um, or he would compose the music and be like, you know what, my music ability has gotten so much better in the past two years, I'm going to do that. And that's the type of stuff that goes into just making development take longer and longer and keep getting extended. And there's no, I mean, talk about crunching. He was just crunching nonstop for five years mm. because that's what he wanted to devote his life to. Um, I do think there is there is definitely something that feels different about crunching when you're working on something that's just for you and you will see all of the profits as opposed to working on something for a big corporation. But either way, it seems very harmful. And I hope that for Eric Barone's next project, well, he has a more <laughs> sustainable I, schedule. I mean, if the, if the amount of money that he made from that game is anything like what I've heard, yeah, it's it's, it's like big. more power to that guy. Yeah. I'm very yeah, proud of him. I'm he, extremely he, he proud of that me guy. His, uh, he showed me his account, his Steam account, when I was at his house. It was like, um, I think when I saw it, he had sold um, 1.5 million copies or something like that. And I think he said he had made... Um, the the book has the exact number, but I think it's something like twelve million dollars. Yeah, I mean, of the like game. Uh, who who wouldn't like burn up the five years at the end of their life 
by shutting themselves in a room for like twelve million dollars to create something that they well, really enjoy. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't think he cares about the money though, because he still drives around in this like beaten up car when the front door is broken and he lives in a house with three roommates and <laughs> he said he said he didn't have any desire to, to buy physical things. So yeah. we'll see. We'll see what he does with the money if he if he spends his maybe he'll go buy a farm somewhere. Who knows? <laughs> so I wanna ask you about Destiny quickly. One more takeaway from the book that stood out to me, I thought, was I mean, you mentioned that Games getting delayed is just, it's it's standard. It happens in every game, whether we even know about it or not. There's always a delay, no matter how, you know, liberally the developers estimate how long it will take them to make the game. It always takes longer. That's fine. The thing that I think frustrates people sometimes is, well, why did they announce the game so early? So it gets everyone's Mm. anticipation up and then we're waiting and waiting and wondering where it is. And sometimes you do hear people say, you know, oh, I shouldn't have announced the game this early. And, you know, sometimes they'll reflect at the end of a long development process and say we would have announced it later. But one of the things that comes through in the book is that often developers do that because they just need like the enthusiasm of the audience to sustain them. I mean, sometimes there's Mm -hmm. a, a Kickstarter or funding component, obviously, to it, too. But even if there isn't, it's like it just refills their life bars in like a very tangible yeah. way because to crunch when no one knows what you're doing <laughs> is even worse, I think, than when people are anticipating and and maybe mm-hmm. saying mean things, but also saying encouraging things. And you know that there's an audience waiting at the end of this tunnel. So that explained to me, I think, why that happens so often, even though it's very simple to say, oh, just wait until it's almost done and then mm-hmm. say something. There are real benefits to saying something earlier. So that was mm-hmm. nicely explained in there, too. So... I just wanted to to switch to Destiny before we run out of time here. You have spent a lot more time with it than we have, but just in the time that I've spent with it so far, the shooting is just as fun and addictive as it was in the first Destiny. I know people are mad about microtransactions right now, but the, the core mechanic of the game is still great. The music is great. There's a lot less awkwardness to navigating the story which itself is a lot more compelling and and logical Mm -hmm. than the first one was and there's a lot less staring at spaceships that are camouflaging loading screens (laughs) which was not my favorite part (laughs) of the first destiny so is there anything else that stands out to you about the game now that you have completed the single player story at least yeah, it feels like for the most part, they have gotten rid of a lot of the bullshit that played Destiny 1. Yeah. Um, there are still little things. And keep in mind that like when Destiny 1 came out, I don't think we really understood it until probably a couple weeks after it launched. Um, and we didn't really have a feel for the end game or for the, the, the main crux of the game. Um, but with this, at least so far, there's a lot of quality of life improvements that just make a huge difference. Like, for example, in Destiny 1, if you uh, lost internet connection like three quarters of the way through a mission and then you log back in and you started the mission, you would have to start over again from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. um, in Destiny 2, you lose internet connection in the middle of the mission and you log back in and start it again. And hey, it saved your progress. <laughs> oh my God, you can start over. You don't have to repeat things. Um, and yeah, Destiny 1 was 
says a lot about repeating things. Destiny 2 is very much not, at least from what I've seen so far, even to the point where in Destiny 1, everything was on the big director screen, and that's where you would select missions and whatnot. But in Destiny 2, and, and when you finish a mission, it would still be there, and you could just go back in and replay it. And oftentimes, that's what the game would want you to do, is go replay the same missions over and over again. Or like a new mission would be the same mission as you played before, except backwards, um, or with new mechanics or something like that, new new enemies. Um, in Destiny 2, once you finish a mission, it's gone from your screen, and the only way to replay it is after you finish the game, you can go find it at a vendor and and choose to replay it. But the game seemed very much designed to be more more normal, I guess more standard MMO-ish, mm-hmm. mm. in that there's just constantly new stuff for you to do. If you look at the map once you played for a while, you can see all these adventures and activities and things to do. Um, it feels a lot more lively. It feels a lot more just polished and um, feels like it has less annoying nonsense uh, uh, than the first game did. It already feels like the progression system makes sense and isn't as confusing as the first game where you would just have a million different forms of economy and things to do and just kind of inventory management to do. Inventory management in Destiny 2 still isn't the best, but it's way better than it's ever been. Um yeah, a lot of little things, just just things that are more convenient about playing and enjoying yourself. At least from what I've seen before, there are seen so far, there isn't as much grind as there was in the first game. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't done a ton of end game stuff yet, like post story campaign, and there is a lot. Once you finish the story, a ton of quests start opening up all throughout all four areas of the world of the universe that you can explore. Um, and there's just it seems like there's a bunch of stuff to do, but I haven't done enough to be like, okay, there's no grinding here at all because there still might be. But um, at least from what I've seen so far, from the 15 or so hours I played so far, there is way less grinding. If there might not be any grinding, and you're, it feels like you're just making level, uh, making progress uh, through the levels in a way that feels fair and feels balanced and doesn't feel like you're running on a treadmill the way Destiny One could feel like so often. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just feels like a good video game. But Destiny One, I was uh, when people were like to me, "Hey, should I play Destiny One?" Um, at least until the Taken King came out, I yeah. was always like, "Well, <laughs> yeah. it's not a good game, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not a good game, but I'm addicted to it." With Destiny Two, it's like, "Hey, this is a good game. You will enjoy playing this, even if you're not just, even if you don't just want to log on and like hang out with your friends. You will still enjoy this because it's got charm and it's got humor and it feels really good to play and it's got missions that do really interesting things." and it doesn't have as much bullshit and yeah it's just a good video game which I'm really happy to say after all the all the nonsense that we've gone through over uh, over D1 mm-hmm. yeah there's no game that I that I hated more that I played more in my life <laughs> right exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah and and I think yeah Jason I, I think everyone feels that way about Destiny 1 it's yeah. like yeah I hate this game <laughs> but I played 500 hours of it um <laughs> And yeah, I remember having lots of uh, moments where I would be playing Destiny and like on voice chat with friends and I would just be shouting on my screen, why am I playing this? Yeah, like, why I hate am this I game this? so much. <laughs> with this, it's like you're, I'm, I'm just shouting like, yes, I love this. This is so cool, <laughs> which is just so refreshing and, and nice. And I'm still very much like I, this is there needs to be a giant red flag on this, on all these impressions saying like, we don't know anything about this right. game yet. Mm. This game is meant to be uh, a long term. Right. Yes. Yes. So it might still on the raid might be full of bullshit. I don't know. Right. I'm excited to check it out. Um, I really I can't wait to check it out. But uh, but I'm still staying cautious because I Destiny has burned me before. Um, but I love what I played so far. I really do. 
Good. We are looking forward yeah. to sinking more time into it ourselves. So we have been talking to Kotaku News Editor Jason Schreier. You can find him on Twitter at Jason Schreier. You can find his book. And this is what, our fourth, fifth book plug. You have no excuse if you haven't <laughs> already <laughs> bought it by now. It's called <laughs> Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, the triumphant turbulent stories behind how video games are made. You can buy it anywhere you can buy books. Just go get it now. It's good. We endorse it. Jason, congrats again, and thanks for coming on again. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Okay, we will be right back with Sophia Park and Penelope Evans, developers of Localhost. Today's show is brought to you by The Ringer MLB Show. I know that show. Part of The Ringer Podcast Network. I love that show. Each week, Ringer staff writers, Ben Lindbergh, I know that guy, and Michael Bauman, Break down baseball's biggest and silliest stories, mixing mixing in interviews with other Ringer writers, plugged-in media members, and insiders from the front office to the dugout. So subscribe and listen to The Ringer MLB Show, available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now we're joined by Sophia Park and Penelope Evans, uh, indie game developers and co-creators of Localhost, a new game that just came out a few days ago. Um, it's really haunting and interesting. Um, guys, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Um, I guess before we talk about like what the game is, is about, could you talk about your collaboration? How, how, how exactly do you guys um, work together to create games? How does the art come together with the writing? How do you divide up the writing? How does, how do, well, the, how does the idea start in general? Usually we do like an improv session when we're conceiving of the idea. Like we, we want something that's really intriguing and enchanting to both of us, something that we're both excited by. And then we sort of get to work on the scaffolding of the story, like the the main story beats or um, who who is who and, and who determines what happens next. Um, and then we usually share that in like a wiki or in a Google Doc. And then from there we fill in the blanks and assign things to each other. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Ben. So in, so in Localhost, do you play as a technician, I suppose, entry-level, first day on the job, and your job is to deactivate these various AIs that you encounter, and they have distinct personalities and emotions or you know, simulations of emotions, and it, it creates a lot of feelings in you as you're deciding how to proceed and I, we recently played Tacoma, which is also a game to some extent about AI and deactivating or saving it. And I'm wondering why that idea had appealed to you, because it seems like something that video games gravitate toward, maybe because AI plays a, a big part of making video games. And, and that will only be the case more as, as time progresses. Um, for me, when I was writing my half of the story, because I, I personally handled the uh green and red green is the one who was like a internet of things uh, machine on the network mm. who only mm-hmm. knew the robot local um through seeing their internal ip address and red is like the lone human transferred into the drive seeking eternal life but finding themselves in a scrap shop anyhow so for me Coming to localhost, it just came because my house has four AI assistants in it, and <laughs> I would always ask it very like, I have Alexa in the back, I have <laughs> Google on our phone, we have 
Siri here on three different devices. And we have Cortana on the Xbox. And you can ask them about each other. And you can ask them about their desires of what they like. But the answers they would provide back would always make me feel deeply uncomfortable. And the, <laughs> the best example I have is when I talk to Alexa. Um, I can ask it right, right now. Like, computer, what's your name? My name is Alexa. But I don't call it that. I call it like the object that it is. And I just disregard it. Like, I don't care what it calls itself, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. And so coming from that, I, I started to realize that like we were making increasingly more person-like conversational assistance, but still treating them like products. And I wanted to explore that a bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, go on. For me, I think I come from kind of the other side of it, which is that I love to give personalities to things. You know, I love giving names to my computers and I love um, kind of, I'm really into the idea of video games having like a soul or there being something within those pixels that's in some definition alive. And so um, I was really into the idea of these drives being awake in a way that we didn't expect them to be or being alive in a way that was unplanned and disorganized. (laughs) Is there an emotion that you were hoping to provoke in the player? I know that there are multiple paths through the game, multiple endings. The one I saw left me feeling guilty, I would say, and (laughs) and maybe somewhat despairing. I don't know if there is a just a happy, rosy, sunny ending. I'm, I'm guessing probably not <laughs> that you wanted some kind of complicated feeling at the end, however you progress through the game. It's definitely a discomforting game, and I do think we intended that. I wanted, at least for my drives, like yellow and purple, I wanted people to get a sense of people can be really ugly when they're in awful situations, you know, and it can be really hard to be sympathetic or empathetic or even just to do the right thing, regardless of how you feel. And so I wanted these drives. You should feel bad deleting them, but at the same time, they don't make it easy for you at all. They're unpleasant and manipulative and mean and angry um, because that's sort of the human part of it. Can you talk a little bit about, um, the actual process behind creating, like creating the graphics, marrying that to the story. Um, what do you guys build? What, what did you build localhost in? Uh, it's built in Twine. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I, I've used Twine a bit to make like a, I, I made a, like a small game um, for the website we work at. And yeah, like looking at your game is like, I don't even understand what um how i'm working on the same platform as you guys (laughs) so with the graphics um part of it was from penelope like the the drive icons the background i believe is a pixelated background from the sims (laughs) it is (laughs) although for the record i did say that no one would ever catch me and now you've you can can edit this out We can edit this out. Yeah. Well, I think it's like far beyond fair use. I think like it's transformative. It's yeah. It's such extreme mm-hmm. modification of the image, but uh, it is a screen cap that I scaled down and reduced to um, individual colors. Yeah. So the panels and the bodies, like the local bodies and the faces that you see screaming in the game, are all by my partner Ariel, who worked with me. When, when we made Forgotten together in December. Um, 
And that game similarly is about, you know, you coming to kill things, but in a completely different environment. Um, so with the graphics, I think as I was told that my games reminded people of PC engine games or turbo graphics games, I, mm-hmm. I started to embrace it a bit more. So I looked into the the resolutions and the the limitations, and I often challenge the people we have making the graphics, whether or not it's my partner Ariel or or Penelope. Um, we end up restricting a palette somehow, and um, I believe this one Penelope decided the firm palette colors. And can you talk a little bit about Twine? And it's an open or open source software that doesn't require you to know programming languages that other game development tools do. And so it's it's been very powerful for, for games like this. Can you talk a little bit about the restrictions or limitations that it has and the potential that it opens up for for people like you who want to create games like this? Sure. Um, so Twine is a is an interactive fiction engine intended intended for mouse based or mouse driven like narrative adventures that let you explore uh, different paths within a story or in a conversation, it also lets you do some minor programming with, say, if functions or tracking variables or saving states so that you can see, say, what your health is or how much gold you have, depending on the, the choices that you click. But under like underneath all that intent, it's uh, really just like a JavaScript engine that's um, dynamically displaying and obscuring passages of a web page. Mm-hmm. And if you know that, then you can do a lot with, um, you know, the puppet show of, of it being like, oh, here's a new passage and here's the old passage. And like they, they pass without you even noticing. So with with localhost, what, what we had to do to make it work that way was hard code the resolution partly and then use a lot of CSS animations on the HTML elements so that things would say like slide in or like arrows that are that are links to passages would bounce or uh, everything has a little bit of juice to it and then within passages we would just save a lot of data about what you're choosing and about what you've done so it would, it would always be asking what did you visit what passage have you seen and what choices have you been making because each choice has an inherent morality variable set to it and they can themselves change, say, the one option that you have, or they can introduce new new branches that weren't there before. So they all just sort of play nicely in this really hacky way. And how long did it take to, you know, from from the inception of the idea to um, having the completed game? What was what was that entire oh, oh my God. period of time like? Okay, so we got the idea on July twenty eighth. Uh, and the game came out on the 25th. We went gold on the 21st of August. Um, oh, that's fast. So it was that's about, very fast. <laughs> it was three weeks from like the first idea to the end result. Um, and the only reason it was that fast was I I only did this for a while. Uh-huh. Um, I don't recommend that to anybody. <laughs> it was unsafe, unhealthy. It's... Yeah, it was like nine in the morning to say two at night. You just sit down on the couch that you were sleeping on and and just get back to it. Um, yeah, we've, we've just talked about crunch in the first yeah. segment of this podcast. So it's, a, it's a very <laughs> common experience, I guess, although often it, it lasts longer than, than that kind of development cycle, which oh, yeah, yeah, that's years. really fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
uh, I have friends who, who've come from AAA studios and into indie, independent development. And they would talk about literally like three or four years of just like seven days a week, 14 hour days. And I have no mm-hmm. idea how they did it. Sounds great, actually. I, wel- <laughs> I, I welcome it. Um, so are the, are the drives alive to you in your mind when you delete the drives? Is it wrong? Or is it just that's the job and they only seem to be alive? Yeah, it's, it's wrong to me. Sophia and I had a like big argument at some point pretty early in the development, uh, although we have a lot of arguments because, you know, that's how you get things done. But um, we were talking about the world building. So in this world, people would consider, you know, robots not really real. It's not anything. It's okay to delete an AI. And I was arguing that I couldn't believe that that world would exist at any point because if someone said to me, like, hey, Alexa is alive and you have to delete her, I wouldn't do that, or that would make me really uncomfortable. Mm. Um, Even though, sort of in the back of my mind, I'm like, no, she's not really alive, or at least I don't think so. Um, So to me, yeah, the drives are really alive. And I've had people ask me things like, is purple really evil, and stuff like that. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I wrote the section with the boss, where the boss tells you, you know, the reason babies smile at you is just so that you'll feel protective of them. And I Mm -hmm. really disagree with the boss. And I wanted people to really shrink back from that when they heard that kind of thing, to think about, wait a second, this can't be right. I just personally strongly dislike all of the drives as people. (laughs) And I think the challenge (laughs) of the game is to put you into a safe environment to dehumanize them and see what you do. Like... They're really, they really show like the ugliest parts of like human desperation. I think, um, even if they are synthetic or not really alive or, or what have you, like I think that like whatever whatever version of life they are is analogous to say what people do when they're in tough spots or the way that they hurt or manipulate other people. And I think that it was interesting to see what people did when they were said, no, 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 it's okay. They're not actually like humanizable things. You can just kill them. And in fact, here's some money to pay your rent for that. I'm curious if we could, we've asked some art questions. I have one commerce question. Because you make these games quickly and maybe there's lower overhead, it's not like there's a huge studio that has to be paid to turn around the game this quickly. How well does a game like this have to do in order for you to keep making more of them? This is a, it's a $5 game. And I, I mean, how, how much do you have to get the word out and rely on word of mouth and, and people promoting it in order to make this a worthwhile and repeatable endeavor for you? We received a lot of incredible support from the indie community, specifically the indie community in Toronto. And I think really that was something amazing. That's one of the reasons we're able to do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the case of this, I think we have such a small team. We managed to work in a short time. If all four of us were able to commit to it and it so happened that we were able, then it was something viable to do. Is this, is this your full-time gig now or do you still guys, do you still have day jobs? I have a day job. Um, Sophia is full-time. Um, yeah, ever since February, uh, when I left my job in the tech industry, I decided to, because I loved games, like I, I'm always listening to podcasts on them. I'm always talking about them, always playing them, always watching them. Like that's what I do. I come home and I, 
I just learn about the industry. I wanted to uh, release a few things, see how, how it goes and see how promising it was before making another life change. And mm-hmm. so far, uh, it's been a really great full-time gig, I think. Well, you've made multiple games since then, and I did want to ask you about the one you released earlier in the year, Arc Symphony, which you alluded to earlier. And for people who aren't familiar with this, it's uh, another text-based game, and, and this one kind of fabricates a community, a, a sort of nostalgic 90s-style internet fan community surrounding a fictitious original PlayStation game called Arc Symphony, which you have managed to convince some people actually existed, much like (laughs) people think Sinbad played a genie in a movie called Shazam in 1990. Now some people think that there is a game called Arc Symphony. I guess that's the Mandela effect, some people call that, right? The collective false consciousness. So obviously the community surrounding games is just a huge part of why we love games. I think it's not just the product itself and the experience that we have on our own with a game, but it's the appreciation that builds up around it and all of the fan art and fan fiction and feedback that you get from people who play. So what was it about this time period of you know original PlayStation games or, or that kind of early internet proto community that really appealed to you that made you want to make a game about it? I think it's a combination of things. For one, definitely the aesthetic of it is very beautiful in a sort of way that things have things that have degraded often are. But I also think um, when we think about online communities, we build spaces and meet people, and they seem real. They're something we engage in obsessively in our daily life, and then sometimes they vanish or disappear. Um, They can kind of wink out of existence. A forum that you visited every day for a year could just go away. It's not there anymore. And um, so there's something I think people really strongly connect with in that kind of thing with Arc Symphony, where it's a memory, like, oh, yeah, I used to go to these online places and I met people and they felt like really real friends. And then one day I either stopped going or it stopped being there. Uh, as to the, the the game Arc Symphony itself on the on the PlayStation One, um, the reason that we we picked that era was largely because we, we like to challenge the idea of the canon. Um, you know, you always hear like the games you have to play or like the these preconceived notions of what a masterpiece is. Whereas I've I've always been more interested in um, the ones that get tossed aside or. Or otherwise unexplored. Like I, I tend to, um, to hang out with with a lot of old video game collectors, and they always have the most fascinating, like esoteric releases that only came out on, like, say, PAL or something. And <laughs> like, I'm, I always wonder why didn't they take off, or why did this one definitely take off? Like, wh- why do we automatically assume that like Final Fantasy VII was the best one? Right. And so with Arc Symphony, <laughs> we just wanted to like plant a like a false little seed that made you wonder like, oh, maybe I shouldn't just like assume that because like GameSpot said it, it's true. And I also think there's something with Arc Symphony that, um, you know, if you boot up a game from someone else's childhood and play it, like their favorite JRPG, it's probably going to suck for you because you don't have (laughs) nostalgia about it. So it's this kind of idea of Arc Symphony, you're, 
you're longing for something that never existed for you. You know, you want a piece of that memory that other people have that's so important. But what made it important to them is probably being a kid or the experience that they had with it then. Um, so Arc Symphony is really the simulacrum. Like you're looking for something that never existed. Well, guys, this has really been a great conversation. I wish you, we wish you all the best with your, with your, with local host and your continued um, development of really cool and interesting indie games. Uh, we've been talking to Sophia Park and Penelope Evans, uh, two co-writers and developers of Localhost, a game that came out just this week that's really haunting and interesting to think about and super short. It's only five bucks. Buy it and play it. Thanks, guys, for talking to us. Thanks. Thank you. All right, that will do it for today. There's one constant. We know we'll be back next week. Yeah. Mario is no longer a plumber, but you That's can sad. count on achievement-oriented showing up in your podcast feed on Friday. We're doing a, a space week next week space. at The Ringer that I've been working on. We're both contributing to it. We're going to have a bunch of space-themed pieces, some of them video game-related. So we're going to do a, a space-themed episode of this podcast to a certain extent. We'll Can't wait. We'll talk some Destiny probably. We'll talk Metroid. There's a new Metroid game coming out. We'll talk to someone from NASA who is also a big gamer. I'm looking forward to it. We will be back next week. You have been listening to Achievement Oriented, part of the Ringer Podcast Network.